really absorb the fact that you don't have to be a mental health care professional to broach this subject. You have to be a human being that really cares and is willing to be present to someone suffering. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. A skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. All right, welcome to the third and final medical series of the Seasoned RD and a content advisory today. Adult discretion is advised, so if you have little ones around you who can also hear, please note that. Today we get to speak with Dr. Shayla Sullivan, a psychiatrist in adult psychiatry with fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry. Dr. Sullivan co-leads a suicide prevention research group and focuses on providing education for parents on ways to reduce suicide risk for adolescents, including safe storage. She's also integral to the eating disorders program for child and adolescents, struggling mainly with anorexia and bulimia. And when Abby asks her opening questions, there are four of us on the call. As is typical with the medical series, we are joined by Dr. Michaela Voss. So Dr. Sullivan invites us to lean into the discomfort of these hard conversations. Also, what was pivotal for her is asking permission to get that family history. She says, I want to know if you're okay with these questions, learning about medication adherence. And here are some magic words. I care. You matter and I can help you. And I love her analogy with CPR, so do listen in. A listener comment, Eliza. Hi, Beth. I just wanted to let you know I'm grateful for your guidance through your podcast. I'm sad to see you go, but excited to see what your next project is. Your podcasts have played an integral role in my growth as an eating disorder dietitian. I would listen to them daily, sometimes on repeat, during my two-hour commute to the PHP IOP treatment center I used to work in. I knew nothing about eating disorders before accepting my first job, and your podcast was like a textbook for me. I have also gotten to know so many wonderful experts, and I'm clapping here because that's the goal through your podcast. I'm planning to attend your monthly freebie supervision as well as the CEDS course class you'll be presenting at IADEP. That's February. So thank you again for the wonderful work you've done, she said, and to support new clinicians like me. Thank you, Eliza. And yes, this podcast, as we know it, with original recordings and weekly drops is closing around the two-year mark, which is March, end of March, maybe beginning of April. We've got enough content to go that far. So Eliza, thank you for signing up for the Supervision Freebies. You will have access to that in the show notes if you, if any listener has not signed up yet. And membership, I've been talking about this for months, is finally opening next week. I know it's been brewing, but but listen, if you're like me, cross the T's, dot the I's, and I can picture my manager saying, you know, just do the thing. Get in there and write do write something up, picturing PowerPoint presentation before when I was afraid to get up in front of people or to make 
do something wrong. And guess what? I'm going to do something wrong. You're going to do something wrong. And that's okay. We can do this together. So sign up for Supervision Freebies in the show notes and you'll be the first to know. And I hope to see you there. Welcome, Dr. Shayla Sullivan to the Seasoned RD Podcast. Thank you so much. It's so good to be here with you guys today. I was just thinking, I'm looking at the three of you and you're, you all look like you're in cold weather. And I just, I just want to say it's 70 degrees in Dallas. <laughs> I'm shallow. So I've got my fair. coat on my lap. <laughs> okay. Anyways, that leaves you in with some ice break breakers. Dr. Sullivan, my first one for you is mountains or beach? Not in cold weather. <laughs> Right. I'm not picking mountains today. I'm picking beach. I love that opportunity to walk on the beach, watch my kids do the sandcastles, snorkel, that kind of thing. But I have to tell you guys, I think you also need to throw in their city because I love to explore a city. Like when I go to New York or San Francisco and I have that opportunity to just walk the streets and, you know, smell the smells and hear all the different languages. I just love that. So I had to pick city too. That's I like that. I think so. We had to add Lake for Dr. Margo Main and City for Shayla. And I'm remembering Dr. Sullivan when you and I were at a conference and walking through the city streets to find a, a place to have dinner. I don't even remember which con I was it Renfrew conference. It was probably Philadelphia, yeah. But yeah, anyways. All right. I've got one for you. Breakfast or dinner? Mm. Probably dinner. I think dinner's more relaxing, you know, and just, I, I feel like I've had so many good dinners with friends that just kind of last. I have a good friend in Denmark and in, in Denmark, you know, that whole European approach to life is just very laid back. It's very not American where we're rushing all the time. And I really enjoy that. And I think that's just more likely to happen at the end of the day. So yeah, I'd pick dinner. Yeah. Sounds great. I Audiobook or paper book? Oh, paper. I've got to hold it. I've got to look at it. And then I've got to, you know, bend the corners because I want to come back to a certain, you know, if it's a book I'm going to be referencing later. But yeah, I still go to the library. I guess I'm kind of old school. Mm -hmm. Libraries are so great. My uh, best friend is a librarian and I, I just, even bookstores, libraries, anything like that. I just love the smell of the paper. I don't know. Yeah. All right. So Shayla, Dr. Sullivan, what got you into psychiatry as a field and eating disorders? Oh gosh, that takes me way back. So I grew up with a mom who was a psychiatric nurse and my dad was a master's level social worker. And so the dinner table conversations at my home were probably not the typical that you would hear, you know, like my mom would throw in things like, well, so-and-so might be a little narcissistic and that's why they behave this way or things like that, you know? So I had that early exposure. I have always been interested in just talking to people, you know, I was a peer counselor in high school and then I went to work with my mom at the mental health center and I got to observe the interactions with the patients. And it just was exciting to me to see recovery happen, whatever was bringing the person in. So yeah, that's kind of how I started. And, and one of the first patients I saw actually at the mental health center had an eating disorder. And I remember the psychiatrist talking about, we may need to 
proceed with you going into the hospital. And it just felt very important. Like this is important work. And then I did research in New York with people that were getting electroconvulsive therapy before I went to medical school. And so that really kind of solidified my decision to go towards medicine. I wasn't sure if I wanted to be a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but those patients presented with a real combination of problems. You know, they had cancer, they had dementia, they had AIDS, and all of those organic processes were really impacting their emotional well-being. And so I wanted to learn more about that and how to address it. So came back home to KU, went to medical school, and then there's a shortage of child psychiatrists. And I got introduced to that, and I realized how much I like children, and I like really working with the family. You know, you don't work just with children in child psychiatry. You really have to like adults, too. I always tell trainees, if you really just want to work with kids, then become a nanny or become a kindergarten teacher. Don't become a child psychiatrist because huge part of my job is working with parents. But that's a part I really relish. You know, being a parent, I think, is the hardest job in the world. And so it's really an honor to be able to just partner with parents as they're going through some of these challenges with their kids. For sure. And, you know, I met you, I think we started at the Children's Hospital around the same time. And there's been so much that you've taught me over the years. And I shared with you an article that you shared with me a while back as a medical doctor grappling with the whole BMI concept of a, a, a patient who had been higher on the, the growth chart for most of her life. And family members were also maybe either really tall or broad or, and how do you do that? How do you figure out target weights are um, for these folks? I've used that article. Anybody who has seen me speak has seen that article, whether it's dietetic interns and, you know, on the Pacific Northwest or in the, in the Northeast, whether it's through the IADEP core courses, I bring in that case study, the case studies, there's a male and female. And then your impact on how you approach patients in the hospital setting where the dietitians are saying, oh gosh, you know, this person is greater than the 85th percentile. We need to send them over to weight management but your sensitivity to eating disorders, what you've taught me so much. No, that's, that's really humbling to hear, Beth, because it goes both ways. I mean, you know, I, I came into this center having not had a specialty in eating disorders and learning so much on the job and our staffings. And you're one of the big people that have influenced me, you know, in addition to all the reading and the experience with our patients. But that literature is so important because in some ways as a physician, you find yourself working in two separate worlds. You have the medical school training I had had such a focus on obesity and overweight being the problem behind so many medical conditions. And then you step over into the eating disorder world where we talk more about health at every size and how there isn't a perfect number for individuals it's it's a little confusing at times, to be honest, I think, for people. And I don't think we really have the answers that we need yet to, to identify in particular how to help 
folks that are in bigger bodies that may be in a healthy place, but we're certainly learning. I have to admit, I was so excited. Recently, I got to lead a medical school class. And of course, during the pandemic, we were limited. So we did a lot of Zoom lessons, but I had Dr. Amy Beck as a guest and she taught about health at every size. And she talked about the stigma so many of our patients face and how much they avoid going to the doctor for fear of getting weighed, if if they're carrying extra weight, how uncomfortable that is for them. And I said to the students at the end, you know, how different is this for you compared to what you've been taught so far? And these were first year students. And it was not different for them because they hadn't gone through all of that training that I had gone through. And I was so excited to think here they are starting their medical school journey, learning that there are so many different pictures of health and that we need to be really mindful when we address our patients with regards to their health and their bodies, where we go with that, you know, because those patients, that patient that you referenced that we cared for together, I've seen so many in that situation who were advised that they needed to be healthier. I say that with air quotes, you know, that they needed to perhaps lose weight. And then we see it derail for a lot of people because the the guidance maybe is very well-intentioned, but it can be harmful at times. And, you know, we see that all the time in our offices. So it's complicated for sure. And I'm thinking, Dr. Sullivan, in your profession in particular, because psychotropic medications often have side effects on weight and hunger. And so how is it or what kind of advice do you have for those generalists out there to try to make sure they're incorporating that into their practice going both ways? You know, I have the pleasure and honor of working with you. So I know that you are always trying to make sure that that they're in a good spot of health. If that's, you know, you don't want them to gain unnecessary weight and you don't want them to lose unnecessary weight. And so what kind of advice do you have for people prescribing to help them know how to monitor that piece? Well, I think, yeah, Dr. Boss, that's a great question. I don't think it's simple. I think I try to focus a lot less on numbers and more on behaviors and, and, basic lifestyle. So when I'm prescribing a medication that I know can contribute to weight gain for many people, if the individual doesn't need to gain weight, we talk about that up front. This medication could increase your appetite. It could increase carb cravings. That can be challenging for some people. Here are some things that can be helpful. Just trying to make sure up front they're aware of the importance of staying hydrated, of having a nice variety of foods, including fruits and vegetables. You know, with all of my patients, I'm trying to encourage movement if it's appropriate for them, of course at a baseline, you know, so that it's not news that we have to come in and later talk about the fact that perhaps they're gaining weight that isn't healthy for their bodies. But, but I think it's really hard. And I think in some ways it's a, a subject that's often avoided and it can be uncomfortable. And our, our society has so much stigma around weight in general that it, it's not easy. I mean, I've, I've also had patients that any mention of it can trigger them going into really disordered patterns. And so I've, mm-hmm. I've written letters for patients to, to share with their specialist, whether they see an endocrinologist or a cardiologist to help them understand, hey, if we focus on my weight, this can be really damaging for me. So can we focus mm-hmm. on 
healthy lifestyle behaviors um, mm-hmm. as, as a huge, a, a really big area, but isn't that tough that we have to write mm-hmm. a letter for our patients to help them advocate for themselves, but it, yeah. it's, it's, it's tough, you know, and, and I think we expect a lot of, of the specialists and also the pediatricians have such hard jobs, you know, they mm-hmm. have a limited time frame and they're supposed to cover everything. And yeah. so it's, it's a tough place to be. I think it's really hard for them to screen for eating disorders and do all those mm-hmm. things in the course of a regular visit. Yeah. And you mentioned Dr. Amy Beck. So do you want to tell listeners what her role is? Yeah. So Dr. Amy Beck is a psychologist in our weight management program. So she helps a lot of kids that carry extra weight that are classified as having pretty severe obesity. She works in our bariatric program as well, kids that are getting surgery. And boy, she she's just amazing at how she partners with her patients, you know, and just really advocates for them. She does a lot of legislative advocacy right now, actually, too, to assure mm-hmm. that our patients are getting appropriate care because that's that's really difficult. There's so many disparities these days yeah. in the care yeah. that patients get across the spectrum, you know, mm-hmm. whether it be some of the traditional eating disorders we think of and also the care for those with obesity. Yeah. And this is actually, I don't want to get into this right now because there's a whole lot going on right now about the newly released American Academy of Pediatrics, bariatrics surgery. And so I'm I'm going to skip right over that because it's way too intense right now, but maybe Dr. Beck would be someone great because I've been in, I mean, worked closely with her and I have always appreciated her her level of reasoning and understanding and her empathy and care for all of her patients. So there's another thing that I had you help with um, with a group of mine and you, it was about how do we help people as dietitians? We are not trained as therapists. If someone comes into our office and feels that life is not worth living, it is, we just, it, we have to be, we are uncomfortable with that as dietitians. You know, what do we do? How big of a deal or problem is it in the mental health field? And, and what do you tell clinicians to do? Sure. That's a great question, Beth. And I, I think I need to acknowledge that it's not just dietitians that feel uncomfortable with this. I think many people most people probably feel uncomfortable with this. And yet I think it's so important that we try to improve our comfort levels so we can address it. So suicide prevention is a big focus of my research and the work that I'm currently doing. And what we know is we have a lot of room to improve. We have had consistently elevated rates of suicide for young people in our country. And um, we have not been improving those numbers. And so we're losing way too many people, but we have tools we can use to identify those at risk and to get them help. And I think one of them is simply getting more comfortable asking those hard questions. So I always tell folks if they wanted to learn more about how to ask the hard questions, the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale is online and they really have a training, takes less than an hour and it's geared towards non-medical people. So they have some videos where you see a police officer talking to someone who is having suicidal thoughts and you start to really really absorb the fact that you don't have to be a mental health care professional to broach the subject. You have to be a human being that really cares and is willing to be present to someone suffering. So 
in my head, I liken it to CPR. And, you know, just in, in the 1950s, if you fell down at a picnic and you were having a cardiac arrest, you died unless you had a family member that was a cardiologist there. And now, of course, how many lay people are trained in CPR? That doesn't make them cardiologists, but it means that they can identify what's happening and they can jump in and do what they can to keep that person alive until they get to the expert. And I really think we need the same kind of training and intervention when it comes to suicide risk. So as a dietitian, you guys, I really think you have a secret therapist hat that you don't want to acknowledge, but so many of you that I've worked with are just so good at reading your patients and understanding that they're struggling. And people often are not going to tell us what they're really thinking unless we ask, unless we send that message, hey, I want to know where you're at. And so if you can lead into the discomfort and ask, hey, you seem like you're really struggling. Have you had thoughts that life isn't worth living? That's an important question. And if Um, someone has had those thoughts, learning more about what thoughts that they've had is important so that you can get them the support that they need. That doesn't mean you become their therapist. Doesn't mean you have to fix it by yourself. You don't want to keep secrets about those things. But I think sometimes we forget that that individual is going to be most likely to disclose that to to someone that they're working with regularly. You know, I have Mm -hmm. patients that might tell a teacher at school or a coach. Mm -hmm. So I really think we all have a responsibility to get more comfortable with that conversation. And then what are the resources? How do we get help with it? But I think if we did that, we would be doing a much better job of identifying risk. We know Mm -hmm. that the majority of kids in our country that die by suicide are not in treatment when they die. Mm. And that to me is a travesty. We don't know young children that die of cancer without the option of treatment, right? That mm-hmm. would be crazy. At least they get the option of treatment. And I think these mental health concerns deserve the same attention. So we mm-hmm. have a lot of work to be done, but I feel like the stigma is decreasing and more people are getting comfortable talking about this, which is really yeah. great. I mean, the big thing was if you ask, are you planting the seed for them? I remember that. It's like, I don't exactly what I was going to ask was Mm -hmm. I would, I imagine that a lot of people out there that aren't well trained is, is it safe to ask those questions and not be a therapist? Are you going to cause something worse to happen? Right. Right. And yeah, we have data that tells us it's safe to ask those questions. And I think learning how to ask them is important. You want to be open about your question I don't say to people, have you ever thought of doing X, Y, Z to yourself? You know, I don't give people options, but I ask, tell me more about that. Tell me what thoughts have you had? But yes, we have good data that if we ask the question, what we signal to the person is, I can help you. If this comes up for you in the future, even if it's not happening right now, I can help get you the support you need. I had a patient once who I had treated for, I don't know, seven years, maybe, And she was getting ready to graduate from my practice, had never been suicidal in all the times I had asked her. And then they came in for an emergency visit and she was fighting with her mom. It was a very unusual situation. And finally, she looked at me and she said, are you going to ask me the big one? And I said, the big one. I thought, oh, no, like, is she pregnant? What are we dealing with here? (laughs) And she said about hurting myself. And she had never been suicidal in the past, but I had asked her so many times that she knew I was a person to come to Mm. if she struggled with that. And 
And she was having some mild thoughts about that and, and we got her help and, you know, she ended up doing fantastic. But, but I think we open up the door is what we really do. Instead of planting the seed, we open up the door that yeah. we can help if someone's struggling. And really, when you talk to people who have struggled with suicidal thoughts, they're not wanting to die. They're wanting their suffering to end. And so if we can show them a path where the suffering can be alleviated, that's that's really such a valuable gift. Yeah. I'm going to tell you as a dietitian, this is really an example of don't try to do this on your own as far as treating eating disorders. Because when I had a client who said, yes, I have a plan, I've always had a plan and I'm not going, I'm not comfortable asking what the plan is, nor do I need to be. I need to make sure that I have a full team on board so that I can say, have you talked with your therapist about that, this, and I am going to let them know that you have shared this with me because that is the next, like, if a person has a plan as a dietitian, I don't need to know what that plan is. I need to know that they have a plan and get them the help that they need and wanting the suffering to, to end. Yeah. I wonder if that's, yeah. And yeah, I was thinking also, Dr. Sullivan, you said that by asking, you're letting them know that you're someone that can help them. But I think you're also saying I care and you matter. And that just by asking that you could send that really powerful message that I would imagine might actually allow them to make some better choices and safer choices. Sure. For sure. Yeah. And I think when we, we talk about youth, there was a study that came out several years ago that indicated that about half of kids who've been having suicidal thoughts have parents who are not aware of that fact. And that's pretty startling and concerning, right? To think so many parents are not aware. So when we are able to identify this, then we can do something about it. So like with my research, a big part of it is helping parents make some of those practical changes, like limiting access to firearms and medications within the home. A lot of a lot of homes, most I'm finding in my research, have medications just freely available throughout the home, you know, and then we see so many um, concerning outcomes with that availability. So I think when we have the information, sometimes it can also help people be motivated to make some of those important changes, because we know that the crisis is often short-lived. It's a window of time, but we have to keep the individual safe when they're in that window so they can move on to that period of recovery. I, I spent a lot of time citing famous, important people who've made their mark on this world with families that I'm working with because I think folks need to have hope. It can feel really scary to know that you care about someone who's struggling, but then you have to remember all these amazing people who have gotten through a similar situation and that that can be helpful. So why is it, why does it matter if they have medications around the home? You brought that up. Is that a concern? Yeah, we've had a significant increase in overdoses or ingestions in our country, particularly for young girls. And so while it's not the main way people end their lives, it significantly increases morbidity. So the amount of suffering that people experience, and we see hundreds of kids every year coming into our hospital after they've taken too much medication. And sometimes people are just unaware of how dangerous over-the-counter medicines can be. I've had at my presentations, you can hear a pin drop when I give an example of someone who took too much 
diphenhydramine, that's Benadryl that a lot of people have big bottles of for their allergies, and they're not aware that it can cause serious damage if it's taken in excess. So really trying to make sure that we're informed. I feel like maybe there's a gap somewhere that as adults, we're not all informed about some of these risks. You know, people know that we need to wear seatbelts, right? And we need to have car seats for our kids, but we haven't talked enough perhaps about limiting access to some of these things within our homes that can be dangerous. Okay. So I'm sitting here hearing the psychiatrist who prescribes medications say don't have medicines in the home. So how is it that I can have both worlds? No, 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 no. Good, good point. I am not saying no medicines in the home. I'm saying limiting access to the medicines in the home. So I recommend that people safely store their medications, whether it's in a locked file cabinet or a medication lockbox and leave a limited amount unlocked. So the weekly medication storage boxes are great to help people with adherence to stay on top of taking their medicines, but it also limits the amount available so that when I interview someone and I say, how much did you take? And they say, I took a handful I think, my goodness, why do young people in our community have access to handfuls of medicine? That just doesn't seem safe or appropriate. Yeah, so we need to have them. Of course, I prescribe them. I think medicines can be life-saving, but we also need to limit access to them. We need to be mindful of those 90-day supplies that are so huge and can be dangerous. And we need to think about disposing those old meds we no longer need. So taking them back to the pharmacy or mixing them with kitty litter, coffee grounds, dish soap, something animals don't like to eat, zipping it up and throwing it in the trash. That's what the FDA tells us to do. What I'm picking up on is that the track of improvement we need in the eating disorder world is very similar to the track of improvement we need in the suicide or mental health world. We talk all the time about there needs to be more education in the medical area and even undergrad for eating disorders. But back to your example of CPR, you know, so many people know CPR, all personal trainers have to have CPR. It's like a, it's a basic now is what it feels like. Why isn't suicide the same? It seems like there's really a lot of, uh, paths crossing there. And even with parents, we talk a lot about, you know, there's no uh, parent eating disorders isn't in the parents manual. If, okay. This is how you help your kid when you're doing that. Well, same for suicide. So yeah, it seems like these two go hand in hand. I agree with you, Abby. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think the other thing we have to be aware of is the fact that Uh, pediatricians historically in most programs, not all, didn't get a lot of education about suicide prevention and even mental health. Certainly there are outlying programs and there are many pediatricians that are very adept at this work that are amazing. So I'm not trying to say that they don't do this work well, but when I speak at AAP conferences, what I hear is, gosh, they didn't teach me a lot of this in my training. These patients just started showing up and I had to learn to deal with it. And thankfully, so many pediatricians are just willing and able to, I personally feel like they are so equipped to do it, but there is a mismatch, right? Because if you didn't have a lot of training in something, how are you going to address it? And how are you going to help parents address it? I I think it's tough. And I think historically it hasn't been talked about enough and it's frankly awkward to talk about. You know, it is, it is painful. I always am cautious as I talk about suicide prevention. Is there someone listening who has lost someone and are they going to perceive blame by how I'm discussing this? I mean, it's a really hard thing. And yet I still believe firmly if we don't talk about it, 
then we're not going to make progress. And so we have to take the risk and go ahead. And that's a big thing I've learned too in my research that so many people are very open to the message you know, like safe storage of firearms. I had people say to me, oh, sweetie, you live in the Midwest. You really shouldn't talk about that. People are going to get angry. And goodness gracious, we have had a really warm reception. And I don't think anyone, firearm owners or non-owners, nobody wants these unintended deaths to happen. You know, so I think the more we can be cautious, but talk about it, we can make some headway. And I'm curious, is there an association between suicidal thoughts or attempts and eating disorders? So there's definitely evidence, yes, that we have a higher risk. And it used to be taught that anorexia had the highest death rate of any mental health condition. And about half of those deaths were due to suicide. I think that the literature continues to evolve and change. So I don't, I don't know that we have great data on that now, but certainly I think we see increased risk. I mean. Dr. Voss, you know, we see that in our clinic all the time. When we talked about the young people with atypical anorexia earlier, I have several cases I can think of where, you know, my patient was experiencing bullying and rejection for many years, largely associated with their weight before they developed atypical anorexia. And so the idea of that person having to gain weight again is, is so painful for them and so scary. And I have, I've, those have been some of the patients I've worried about most in terms of suicide risk, because the things they tell me are that they will not go back to that place. It's a whole nother layer to address. And it's really tough. Yeah. Yeah, it is a it is a whole nother layer because what if we changed our culture to accept all people no matter what size? <laughs> right? Because bullying happens no matter what size and that can lead to eating disorders even if the person has been a low weight all their life. So it is it's just so so loaded. Shayla, you're Dr. Sullivan, sorry, when you're one of the first people to, I think it was within the clinic, whenever we were trying to get a family to go see a psychiatrist, go see you or Dr. Tobler, I don't want medicine. I don't want medicine. And it was one of the first times that I heard, you don't have to go out. Like if you talk to Dr. Sullivan, yes, she's a prescriber. However, why don't you bat some things around with her, right? Right. Oh, for sure. I'm a big fan of meeting with families who don't necessarily want a psychiatrist or don't necessarily want medication for their child because I can relate to that. I'm a parent myself and and that's scary. You know, I remember taking my son to the eye doctor and saying, well, what are we going to learn about those drops in 10 years? (laughs) You know, like parents are appropriately concerned and especially with mental health, there's so much misinformation out there. So I kind of relish the opportunity to talk to a parent, not push medication on them necessarily, but really try to understand where is your child coming from and your family experience. I think getting that family history is one of the most important pieces that sometimes isn't always gathered. I learned many years ago at a conference to ask permission to ask a family history, and that's a very small thing. But I think what it signals to the person you're interviewing is I'm about to ask some hard questions and they are personal questions. And I want to know if you're okay responding truthfully and talking with me about this. And I think, you know, sometimes we get in a hurry and I mean, I'm the first to do this. You know, we have so many things we want to get through in our interview 
And sometimes it may be hard to remember how vulnerable that parent or that patient feels as you're asking them these hard questions. And so I also have the privilege in our center of not being the first one to meet with a family. So I don't have to spend a lot of time clarifying if they have a diagnosis of anorexia or bulimia, because that's already been done for me. And so I can spend more time on the family history, trying to figure out, okay, I understand this parent has been very against medication. Let me really spend some time trying to understand what might be behind that. Usually I find there's some really good reasons. People have good reasons and often they had been over-medicated themselves in the past, or they had terrible withdrawal and no one had told them that abruptly going off this medicine would make them feel ill. I mean, so many good reasons why parents can be cautious. And so I think being able to take that time with the family history often for me really illuminates, okay, we've got this history of trauma or something we haven't yet addressed and, and maybe it's getting in the way of recovery. Huge. I'm thinking when I'm re-listening to this episode, I'm going to be doing the, okay, 30 seconds back, 30 se- I want to hear that what, what Dr. Sullivan said about ask permission for a family history. And this goes along with so many other things. When we interview Dr. Margaret Berman about informed consent, it really is, okay, you want, you're coming to see me, and this happens for dietitians all the time, and Dr. Berman is not a dietitian, uh, I believe psychologist, but it is what if we don't talk about weight? It is an informed consent to, I understand that you want to come here to lose weight and you want to talk about through your therapy, through your nutrition, why why is your weight the way that it is? And she gave Abby a great example of what if you won the lottery? Yeah, so you can go back and listen to, or we can reference that one. But really it is informed consent to talk about anything other than what if you could change your body we understand we're holding space for that and it opens it up asking permission for that family history it seems like you can you can they have a good reason why they don't want to talk about medication or why they don't want to go on Sure. Or or why they're hesitant to follow maybe the plan that's been set forth. You know, sometimes the family member might disagree with the goal weight range that has been set and they're having trouble acknowledging that or talking about that. So really just trying to partner with them and say, hey, you know, we're we're all on the same page here. We're trying to help your child get to a better place. But I think sometimes it can feel a little adversarial. We ask families to engage in some pretty tough things with treatment, you know, so many appointments and it's incremental improvement, right? It doesn't happen overnight. It's so different than other treatments in medicine that are more obviously felt. So I think it's difficult, but I think the more people feel comfortable with us and able to tell us where they're coming from, that that changes it. I had one example of a mom who had been put on a short-acting benzodiazepine. And that can be even lethal if you are addicted to that and you come off it abruptly. And for a very long time, nobody in our clinic could figure out, you know, why is she so opposed to her daughter being on an SSRI, a very different family of medications that does not cause that same response. And, and finally, she talked about that. And it was just this horrible experience she had had. But then at least I could empathize with her and acknowledge how terrible that experience was. You know, many people, unfortunately, have had bad experiences in medicine and in treatment. And I think maybe they worry that 
we're going to get our feelings hurt if they tell us that. Whereas I tell them up front, listen, I, I understand that there's not always a great experience in people's histories and it helps me to hear about it so that I can address that when I'm, you know, explaining what a medicine does or that kind of thing. And I want to go back to this, this mention of time, because as you know, a lot of people in private practice don't get a lot of time. So the psychiatrists that are out there that are doing this amazing job of trying to treat those, these kids with these complex issues and have eating disorders, and they might have limited time that's beyond their control. Do you have recommendations on what would be the most important things to ask within that limited time? If they had to only pick a few because of, of time okay. um, and they didn't have that hour long, is there something that you think would be more impactful and help guide the care better than something else? Not that they couldn't ask that later, but. Sure, sure. I think one of the biggest things I've stumbled upon in my visits is that adherence to medication regimens is tenuous at best for a lot of people. So when you look at the statistics, majority of teenagers are not taking their medications as recommended. And I think the majority of clinicians assume that they are. And so we oftentimes have this long list of medications that have been considered treatment failures when in fact there was never a thorough trial of medicine. So I would say that's one of my biggest ahas is if you can really hone in on that. I work with Dr. Maddox, who's a great psychologist, and she works in adherence research. And one of the things I've learned from her is to ask, what are the barriers to taking your medication? What gets in the way of taking it? And it doesn't have to be medicine, right? It could be some other activity that we're asking the patient to engage in, like drinking a supplement in the morning. But often when we hear what those barriers are, we can then partner with them on breaking down the barriers and they can feel more comfortable acknowledging. You know, I, I had a resident once say, gosh, your patients are so comfortable admitting they don't take their meds regularly, almost like, are you doing something wrong? Your patients don't take their meds. And I say, you know, people in general struggle with this. This is the human nature thing. So if you can normalize it for them, I think you get further faster because then they're comfortable telling you, well, I've only been taking it three days a week. And then you can figure out, do we need to work on adherence? You know, we don't want to just keep increasing the dose. So that's, mm. that's one area I would say is an important one to focus in on. I love that. It's it comes back to the relationship. Are you comfortable? Why are your patients comfortable telling you? And I had a colleague say, I don't know why I'm seeing this person for a chronic disease, but I keep finding people with eating disorders. Well, guess what? Because you're asking them some questions that other people haven't asked. And we can't diagnose eating disorders as a dietitian, but we can sure ask those questions that help point to a better care system for what they're going through. For sure. Once you get comfortable asking those questions, you're just going to find people everywhere, right? So yes, then you have to try to find support. I think that's the other thing, Dr. Voss, when you think about if you're working in isolation by yourself, you've got to partner with other clinicians who are professionals in this field. That has been such a joy for me. That's not only fun, but a huge source of support that I'm not the only one making some of these decisions, you know, that I get to consult with the rest of the team. And yes, it takes time. And so that is an important piece of the puzzle, but it's worth it. And the outcomes are better for our patients when we can do that. I like the piece of asking them what their barriers are to it. To whatever, it's a supplement, it's a medication. Sometimes that as a dietitian, that's not where my mind first goes. It's like, 
come on, why are you taking your medicine? Like this is meant to help you just take it. But there's so many layers to that. So I'm going to remember that one. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and sometimes you find out the person feels fearful. The medicine will change their personality or they have this moral judgment that no one else in my family takes medicine and I feel lazy that I have to take it. I mean, there's so many heavy weights that people carry at times. And so sometimes if you can address that, it can really help them, you know, move forward. Sometimes it's just they're busy, right? And and they're just having trouble pairing it with, okay, if you put your shoes on every morning, let's take your meds when you put your shoes on, that kind of thing. Something I've seen, I'm sure you have a lot of patients who use TikTok. I don't know if they talk to you about this, but they're coming up with all of these cute medicine containers where it'll be like a little character. And then you just push the top of the character's head and out comes your medicine. So it does feel like we're trying to kind of normalize it, add a layer of, I don't know, fun, I guess. I, I do feel like we're getting somewhere. Completely. Abby, I've said for years, it needs to be a fun Shark Tank idea and someone will make bank because there's all these, you know, old school containers that look like you're a grandma that are plastic that you can see at the local drugstore. And and yes, I, I've bought some of those, you know, Vera Bradley and different like trendy ones that I have in my office to say, listen, it doesn't have to be an old school thing. You know, you, you got to make it work for you. Okay, Dr. Sullivan, we have a wrap-up question for you. It's a bit loaded, so take your time. But if you were to take yourself back to entering the field of eating disorders, what do you wish you would have known then that you do know now? Hmm. That's a hard one. I think when I started out, I was working with some very sick young people that were really struggling. I, I tended to have patients that were treatment refractory referred to me. And so I didn't get to see a lot of successes early on. And I wish I had had more exposure to what I've seen now and and all my time that I've been here, you know, that I've seen so many people turn the corner and move forward in their lives in a really healthy way. And those examples are so necessary, I think, because I think a huge part of our jobs, at least for me, a big part of my job, I think, is, of course, to assess and treat and offer treatment. But I feel like I need to offer hope to my patient and to the parents when they are in that time of crisis, right? They need us to walk with them on that path. And I think it's easier to walk on that path confidently now that I have seen so much recovery. And I've seen people in the depths of despair get through it and, and go to law school. You know what I mean? And so it's it's really, it's wonderful to have that knowledge. So I think anyone that's starting out in this field, you really need to partner with people who are more experienced and, and learn from them. And one of our psychologists in the clinic actually said that pretty early on. She's like, we need to send Shayla some more straightforward patient situations so she can see (laughs) what recovery looks like. And, and that was really important and helpful for me. I love that. And I, I, I know that I should have asked this before. I I don't know if you have a quick example of someone that you share, famous people who have made a difference after they attempted, a, like, ha, you, you said that you tell your clients or your mm-hmm. patients sometimes, look at this person or this sure. person, what they've been able to do. 
Oh, there's so many. I mean, Abraham Lincoln is the big one that comes to mind for me, that many people think he was our greatest president. And yet he had two distinct periods in his life where friends and family were afraid to leave him alone. Because I did not know that. I know. If you watch the movies, he just looks like he has bad insomnia. But I'm telling you guys, he was (laughs) depressed. (laughs) There's a great article in the Atlantic online that that chronicles it. And so I, I think that's really important to remember that some of the greatest people on earth who are going to make big impacts go through periods of intense struggle and that they can pull through that. I mean, there's so many Olympians and authors and, you know, in every walk of life, really, we're seeing it a lot more with athletes now, people coming out and sharing, which I think is extremely helpful. So, yeah. Thank you for that. Well, Dr. Sullivan, thank you for joining us on the season, Darty. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com professionals.